When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. She asked, well, what about in Italy? Was, was your friend Stefano gay? And to which I replied, yes. And then she said, well, why was he telling me he likes all those girls from Sex in the City? <laughs> and to which I replied, mom, that's the gayest thing anyone could ever say. <laughs> My name is John Pollock, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to John Pollock. John is the founder and CEO of Chalandiamo, a boutique Italian travel company where, full disclaimer, Sharon and I actually sit on the board of this company. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, he's a, he's a good friend of ours in the city. And, you know, the thing I learned about John that I'm a little taken aback by. Yeah. Is that he's into sports. <laughs> <laughs> and as a non sports fan, I'm questioning our friendship now. <laughs> right, right. I know. I learned, you know, it's like I know John from being a board member. I know John also because he's one of my clients for my agency. And it was such a pleasure to get to know John today. I mean, I really feel like he shared so much with us that I just didn't know about him. Just, his relationship with his mom and dad, what that was like growing up in Long Island, splitting his time between two households because his parents were divorced when he was growing up. And well, I mean, they are divorced, I guess I should say, but they they got a divorce when he was pretty young. So hearing those types of stories was really interesting and fascinating. Well, and I mean, the one thing him and I actually do have in common is our love of cooking, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even though... He talked a little bit about oatmeal for breakfast during the pandemic, which is like the worst breakfast ever. <laughs> he was like, that's a treat. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm probably now getting myself in trouble with this husband. Why are you so anti-oatmeal? Anti-oatmeal is not so bad. I, you know, I'm of two minds about breakfast. I think either, and so maybe this is where oatmeal is okay. Breakfast is safe and functional okay. or go to town, like biscuits and gravy, you right. know, eggs with cheese, you right. know, runny eggs. And in this pandemic... My family, because like when the pandemic's not going on, it's a banana and coffee, banana on the train, coffee when you get to the office, right? In mm -hmm. the city. But now that I'm home every day, I'm like, oh yeah, bagel with jalapeno cream cheese. Let's have biscuits and gravy. Right. <laughs> like we're right. like, like breakfast savory. is our guilty pleasure right now. Yeah. 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 You know, before I met my husband, I wasn't a big breakfast person either. Like literally same thing, coffee, like from a cart on the way to work or, you know, picking up a donut or a pastry and when I met my husband, he was like, no, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So we actually sit down and we have eggs and bacon and avocados and, you know, fruit every morning and he makes it. Wow. Yeah. He's a keeper. He is a keeper. That has nothing to do with John Pollock, but that's just... <laughs> so speaking of cooking, another thing worth mentioning about John is a pivot that his travel company had to recently take amidst the pandemic. Chalandiamo is known for providing authentic Italian travel experiences, but right now, no one's traveling anytime soon. So alongside their Italy-based team, Chalandiamo is bringing authentic Italian experiences to your home with their Chow virtual classes and team building events. I promise this is not a paid ad, but it is us using our podcast to help a good friend and maybe give you something really cool to check out. Look, most of us are working working from home, and we're not connecting socially with our teammates, friends, and family as much. This is so much more than just another awkward Zoom happy hour. Chow's virtual classes, from Italian wine tasting to pizza and focaccia cooking, to even Italian language classes are a great way to connect and celebrate with your team and your loved ones. And John's team in Italy and New York put on an amazing event. I recently attended a focaccia and pizza cooking class with John's business partners, the infamous husband and wife team of Max and Cristiano, in Italy, and it was so much fun. I was in my kitchen, 
Max and Cristiano were in Italy, and there were people from all over the country involved. And Sharon's agency had a recent wine tasting to celebrate a really big win. An upcoming guest of the, this podcast who works at Google just signed up for a class for his friends and family. So head over to chowclass.com, that's C-I-A-O class.com to learn more. Trust me. John's one of the most thoughtful people I know. And you didn't get it from the teaser quote, John's gay. And, you know, we got right into it. But he was really inviting into letting us ask questions about his story and his experiences yeah. and how he knew it and his mom's questions about sex in the city. And, you know, that was hilarious. That really was very funny. <laughs> yeah. So get ready to have a nice conversation with our friend, John. So today we've got John Pollock on the show with us. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, John, a lot of people know you as this entrepreneur, this passionate guy about Italy. But I guess what we really want to know is... What did you have for breakfast, John? I had oatmeal. My husband, he would admit freely that he is not much of a cook. He's more of the wine and drink pourer. I'm, I'm more of the <laughs> chef of the house. But the one dish that he has now been regularly making for the household during quarantine is oatmeal with fresh cut berries. And I'll take it. I'm a happy husband. Yeah. You guys are living on the edge. Oh yeah. my God. That's, I know. That's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Super healthy. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is I, quite frankly, I enjoy cooking and, and we have a small galley New York kitchen. And so honestly, having both of us in the kitchen doesn't usually work out too well. I've learned enough now to know that when I think I want help and I call him in, that it just becomes more problematic than I bargained for. And I'm quickly <laughs> yelling at him and kicking him out of, out of the kitchen. So one at a time, let him make the oatmeal, yeah. pour the drinks. I can do the rest. That's fantastic. <laughs> and how do you guys divide up the dishes after you cook? I'd say also quarantine has helped us to be a lot more collaborative in the after dinner cleaning up. So by necessity, but it's one of the good things that's that's come out of this situation. So We'll divide and conquer. I'll usually do the washing. He'll do the drying. It's a real team effort. That's good. That's <laughs> yes, good. And we, so we don't fight about it quite as much anymore. <laughs> Have you always been a pretty good cook? Or when did you actually start cooking all the meals versus getting takeout all the time? No, I, I used to be a terrible cook or, or not at all skilled in the kitchen. My old roommate, Mangesh, from this was probably two years out of college, still jokes about memories of me coming home from work and having for dinner peanut butter straight out of the jar with a spoon. <laughs> you were a very classy, classy guy. So classy. Very classy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, of course, sometimes we'd splurge an order in. But no, I didn't really I didn't really start cooking till I guess my late 20s. I think for me, I've grown to love the art of cooking and I'm still I'm by no means a chef. I just enjoy doing it and learning along the way, but for me, it's a lot of it is about the shared experience of the meal. And so when I had my first live-in boyfriend relationship, that's when I started cooking more and I haven't stopped. <laughs> and in quarantine, I'm cooking like every day, basically. Yeah. But that's the luxury of not having kids, I guess. No, even with kids, it's all cooking all Cooking the time. all day long. All day long. Right. I mean, maybe it's more, it's less fun with kids. Kids, perhaps. <laughs> you know, actually, I, all right. So I was talking to another friend about kids and his kids are teenagers. And my daughter was jumping in on this call. And my daughter kept jumping in to the phone call with my friend, Robin. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that age. It was a lot of fun. But he has teenagers. I'm like, I'm mouthing to him while my daughter's being killed. I'm like, it's not fun. <laughs> she won't leave me alone. And it occurred to me. And Sharon, tell me if this is right. So it gets better every year, right? It becomes more and more awesome. Yeah. But the flip of that is that means the years before it was worse. So my right. friend Robin was teenage kids. It's better and better. Right. And I'm like, it's actually worse now than what you have with teenagers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very true. Well, I don't envy you guys, but I mean, you have lots of other blessings. <laughs> do you want to have kids, Sharon? Do you and Chris want to have kids? Good question. The official word on the street is we're undecided. Okay. I'd say we both are on the spectrum of kids versus no kids. We're on slightly different points. I'm probably a little bit more on the open to it, wanting to have kids. Although I'd say for me, it's one of those things where it's hard for me to imagine myself never having kids, but it's also hard for me to imagine myself 
having kids tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and I'm not really a youngster anymore. So I feel like I've been giving this answer for, for a number of years now. So I think eventually biology is not going to allow, allow an oopsie doopsie. So I think... <laughs> It's not fair. It's not unless fair. We, unless we really get gung-ho about it, we're, we're, we're probably trending towards no kids, which is hard because on the one hand, we both are big family people. We're very close with our parents, our siblings, our cousins, and, and we have a very kumbaya relationship across our in-laws. And we each value like close friendships and all the stuff that goes with that. And so in a macro sense, we'd be fit for parenthood, but... In a micro sense, I don't know, we really like our independent lives. And it's hard for me to also just, <laughs> I think we've seen the, the whole spectrum of parenthood experiences across our friends. And they all are stories that have love and happy endings, but it's hard. <laughs> I don't it need to tell hard. you guys. It's weird for me to tell you that, but I don't know. So short answer is I don't know. And I'm sticking to that. That's good. For, That's for what answer. it's worth, either Sharon or I's kids will probably invade this podcast or Perfect. scream at some yes. point in the episode. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we've been battle tested with our six-year-old Welsh Terrier Scout, who, not to compare our, our fur baby to your, your real babies, but you might hear her on the podcast, but she was really a challenging puppy. And she still is like a tough, very strong-willed, active management dog. <laughs> That's hilarious. We went to, when we went to, to puppy kindergarten the first time, the question we got from the head trainer wasn't, is this your first time having a puppy? It was with a look of alarm. Is this your first time having a Welsh Terrier? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> she's very sweet. She's very photogenic. And yes, we are that New York City couple who's taken our dog to an animal behaviorist. But basically, she's been diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and neophobia. <laughs> So what's neophobia? Neophobia is she has a fear of new things. So she does really well when it's the routine. She's with her daddy's stuff's good as normal. But the second you introduce a new variable or any triggering variable, because some of the variables are just like anytime we get food delivered <laughs> and the buzzer rings, she just, she loses it. But Oh my gosh. Scout. But, so, okay. I got to ask a more, a more pressing question. Sure. There's a, puppy kindergarten so does that mean there's like oh, a yeah. pre-k and a preschool like yeah. do they have the the other things before it or is kindergarten the first thing it's not that bougie <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> but, but it's you close. Mean there's no private school application job no, i'm just no, kidding <laughs> no i mean maybe there is but we just this was puppy kindergarten was basically like a five or ten course class we signed her up for where we just learned some of the ropes but i will say that a few dogs from time to time would get timeouts and scout had far and away the most timeouts in oh. puppy kindergarten. <laughs> she's an overachiever. He, she, yeah. Scout is she, an overachiever. She. Yeah. All right. She's an overachiever like her parents. She How's is. That? Yes. Yes. Yeah. We'll go with that. <laughs> well, Sharon and I know you pretty well as grownups, but how are you different from young John from Long Island? How are you different from that kid? Growing up, while I had good friendships and felt like I had a pretty good social life. At the same time, I think I had a lot less confidence than I do now as an adult. And not that that's not something I still try to work on. But I guess as a kid, I was always trying to fit in. And I think we all as people do that to an extent. And I'm sure I still do different versions of that today. But as a kid, I think I had friends, but I was never like part of the, the popular crew. And I think there was always a desire to fit in in whatever way was the way that you should, whatever that means. And it was really more in college years and thereafter that I found my groove. And part of that was about building friendships that have stood the test of time and been more lifelong friendships. And part of it was just embracing the fact that fitting in is a silly idea and that's more of a construct than anything that should be <laughs> be something your goals are tied to. I think college and thereafter really eased a lot for me. and But I still think it, it's something that's like part of my DNA. And I think part of it's just stems too from some of the behavioral patterns I learned from family growing up. What do you mean by behavioral patterns? I guess if I could describe a bit my family and I have wonderful, loving parents who I'm very fortunate to still have in my life, and I'm very close with them both. They're very different people. And again, as you guys may know, my parents got divorced when I was super young, when I was three. So I feel like 
having two separate households, they lived 15 minutes apart from each other in Long Island. So I, my home base was at my mom's, but I, both of them were very integrated into my life. So I think having these two separate households, while we're all the blend of our parents to some extent, I think the dichotomy of those two households and those very different personalities, I think that instilled in me a, a little bit of a constant push and pull between these two very different personality types. And I think there's lots of great things that now in adulthood, especially I'm, I'm able to draw upon because I think Chris always likes to say that I'm the best part of my dad and, and my mom combined. That's when we're, on, when we're playing nice. He says that. But. <laughs> the converse is true when you guys are fighting with each other. Yeah. When he's making you oatmeal in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, my dad, his name's Doug. We refer to him as Dougie Fresh. Born in 1950, grew up in the 60s. He's definitely was in the hippie culture, very optimistic, live in the now and positive and just don't sweat the small stuff were some of the simple but wise words he imparted to me at a young age. But my dad was also much cooler than I was. So as a kid, I have lots of memories. He would and he still does talk to strangers all the time in a very casual way. And being more of an introvert, and especially as an introverted kid who also was just trying to find his own, that was not something that came easy to me. So I think that was always, we'd be out in public and he'd, he'd say hi to a, a random group of older kids or teenagers and I'd be mortified, not because of him, just because of me, because I wasn't as cool as my dad. So on my mom's side, I'm an only child. On my dad's side, I have two younger sisters from his second marriage. So I'm the only child for my mom, and she is a full of love, full of interest and involvement, is the most democratically <laughs> correct way I can say this. She's your typical overbearing Jewish mother, which comes with a lot of things, both good and bad. and I definitely appreciate the good parts of it. As a kid growing up, there was so much doting on me and that would range from both helpful to my self-esteem, but also probably created its own set of challenges where I felt like I had to be perfect in certain ways. And add into the mix, my grandpa, who was the head of the family, and he was this very gruff and opinionated, loud guy. And so Add into the mix him and my mom being who's very close with him walking on eggshells around him. I think I developed basically this need to not rock the boat, to go with the flow, fit in, and also to just achieve and perform. So I think where I'm going with this question is from all that, it was hard for me as a kid to just be comfortable in my own skin and not always be overthinking things and worried about what people were gonna think and how I was gonna fit in. And so I think some of my dad's qualities blossomed in me at a slightly later age. And now today I'm this perfect blend of my dad and my mom that Chris and, and others. That Chris loves about you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so you've talked a lot about fitting in and about the differences between your mom and your dad and how that shaped who you are. What are some things that made you feel very different when you were growing up in Long Island? Sure. So I'll, I will preface this question. So I'm a gay man. And as a kid, I, I know that this was not something that I really recognized or was able to identify or embrace until I was a young adult. When did you know you were gay? I really actually wasn't until a little bit after college, which is hard for people to understand. Everyone has their own unique experience with figuring out who they are. And maybe mine came from this really strong need to fit in. But it was something that I guess as much as I struggled in my own head to fit in, on the other hand, I was actually, I've always considered myself someone who's fairly adaptive and can be around all different types of people. And I think this applies to a lot of dimensions in my life. But because of that, it was easy for me to, and just because of the social situations I was exposed to and the friends I made, it became easy for me to compartmentalize this. And I dated women in high school and college, and it was fine. I didn't really know that there was this important part of me that I hadn't figured out. But I'll tell you the minute that I started figuring it out, <laughs> I wanted, well, first there was obviously, there were a lot of complex feelings and emotions about it. But once I knew for certain, it was something I was ready to double down and embrace it and unleashed the passion inside you. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's great. It, it, you said something. You said the minute I started figuring it out, what was that minute? Did something happen? Was it you just saw an episode of Seinfeld? I mean... <laughs> yeah, I was watching this show about nothing and, <laughs> and Kramer came in. And you're like, hey, I have a feeling. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But no, I, I think quite honestly, it was looking back, I feel as though... Well, looking back and explaining this, I feel like a total idiot. <laughs> but but basically, there were plenty of times when I had feelings towards, I guess, at the time, other boys, because I was a kid. And I would basically adapt those feelings as, I really want to be friends with that guy. <laughs> and then I think what really changed was when I had kind of my first crush that I identified as that and not, okay, I want to be friends with this person to okay, I think I've been a little tone deaf <laughs> to myself here for quite some time. And then once I had the initial feelings, it was tough because here I am, let's say 23 years old, and I have these friendships, relationships, and going back to other parts of our conversation, this inner makeup where I'm programmed to want to try to fit in. And so, and not to rock the boat, just like my mom wouldn't rock the boat with Grandpa Chuck. And basically, if this is true, and this is my path, and I'm, I'm gonna have to rock the boat quite a bit, or at least it, it felt that way. So I basically, I guess I was somewhat not analytical about it, but just methodical that, okay, I'm gonna keep this somewhat secretive for now, until I know for sure <laughs> that this is who I am, which I think, especially in today's world might seem a little bit silly or ridiculous. And I'm not saying this is the behavior I should have had or shouldn't have had, but it was just what I was able to muster up for myself because I felt as though, okay, if this is a Band-Aid we're going to rip off, it's not one that you're going to be able to put back on and pretend nothing happened. So I wanted to make sure I was certain before. I, and, th and then once I was, then I wanted to scream it from the rooftops. So I did my whole like my whole little coming out tour, which was, it was a, <laughs> it was a whirlwind thing. And it was over a few months. And it was, who was the first person? Who was the first person you told after you knew after you wanted to shout it from the rooftops? So the first person I told was someone I told early on. And so I guess just backtracking, I guess I told one friend. And then I had my one confidant who I could, who I could confide in. And then maybe a, a couple months, a few months passed before I I climbed up to that rooftop, but it was one of my best friends from college who is gay. And so I, yeah, I told him, I told him basically as soon as I, it, it wasn't like the moment I suspected, but it was the moment I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> and was he like, yeah, I knew dude. Did he know before you? Like it's about time you came out, dude. <laughs> so this is my friend, Donald, who's a, who's a bit of a character for anyone who knows him. But basically I, I called him up. This is early 2000. So we didn't have we didn't have FaceTime or Zoom, but I called him up and I said, I said, are you sitting down? And he said, yes. And I'd later come to learn that he wasn't sitting down, but he was just looking in the mirror, trying to wait for his own, to, to watch his own reaction. But <laughs> I, I said, I have some news to share. And he said, what? I'm like, well, and I didn't come right out with it. And he's like, did you get somebody pregnant? And I said, no. <laughs> And then he said, jokingly, are you gay? And I said, yes. <laughs> and cue the long silence. And I said, don't tell anybody. And then he proceeded to go off to a party. And, and tell he didn't tell a lot of people, but he was telling some <laughs> random person in the guise of that he thought I was just confused and didn't believe it and all this stuff. So I guess in deluding myself for, for quite some time, I guess I did a pretty good job of, of deluding others. <laughs> so, so one thing we talked about, and we've known each other for a while, but in a previous conversation, this is going to date this interview, but we talked about Mayor Pete, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we talked about how there's the people who are, if I say the word, it's weird, but if you say the word, it's not. <laughs> so, but it's like some folks who are more flamboyant. It's not about being open, but it's just the idea of being obviously gay. And then the idea of just, yeah, just happens to be gay. Right. And we talked about Barack Obama and Mayor Pete specifically, right? So Barack Obama as the the black politician who conformed and fit into a norm because that's who he was, right? He was a nerd, right? And then we talked about Pete's success because of that. And I think back to when I first met you, I didn't know you were gay. You were this guy that I worked with. And then you quit the company I was at because you'd been there for a few years. And I went to your going away party 
and you introduced, oh, this is, I think it was your boyfriend, Chris. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Don't care. Yeah. And he makes my, my own meal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were, it was at Pershing Square. It was Wait, at a breakfast when, place. When you're done with this, I want to tell you my, the moment I found out John was gay story too. Oh, yeah, no, but I want to hear it. <laughs> here's the thing. I'd been in New York a few years by that point, but I didn't have any gay friends. I had this perception of gay people. But when I found out you were gay, I was like, eh, I don't care. And for me, I was like, that's pretty cool. I actually don't care that he's gay. And I know this is about you, not about me. But and then a couple of years later, we became friends and started working together on some projects. And again, my relationship with you has almost had zero to do with it. You're just this really smart guy who cares way too much about Italy. (laughs) (laughs) That might be like the only signal I've got. But I just, I want to bring it back to like the Mayor Pete analogy, this idea of, are there different types of, just like, I guess there are different types of Indian people or Chinese people or married people or straight people. But I don't know, you brought up the self-identification with Pete a little bit. And can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, and I think if you polled 10 gay men or anyone in the LGBTQ community on this question, you'd probably get a few different types of answers. Well, you guys aren't like a monoculture. You don't all think the same thing. <laughs> I mean, this shockingly, you know, I mean, they've got some subcategories for us, but <laughs> <laughs> basically I think, so Mayor Pete's an interesting example because, and, you know, personally, I'm, I was definitely a Mayor Pete fan for a number of reasons, still am, but he was somewhat polarizing in that, okay, I mean, Let's celebrate this individual who's the first openly gay like lead presidential candidate that almost became the head of the Democratic Party candidate for the 2020 election. There's that one camp that's like, let's celebrate the, this man and like all he's accomplished and, and how breakthrough and, and transformational this is for our community that we've come this far that it's actually now acceptable that he's even on the stage, which is no small feat and certainly wouldn't be for many different minority groups. And that's one side of it. And then on the other side of it, you have a lot of people who are in the camp well. And I can certainly appreciate this view as well. This wasn't the view I I personally held, but I understand why people have it is, okay, this guy is like the whitest milk toast. <laughs> like it's, the, it's the Obama acting. argument. It, yeah, yeah. It's black people said about Obama in the early yeah, days. He didn't come out till a very late age and he hid his sexuality and he's not embracing his own gayness in a prideful way. And so I think there's different extremes of that view. For some, that's just like a little bit of a turnoff. For some, it's I'm vehemently against Mayor Pete, even though I'm gay myself, because he's conveniently gay because it's now self-serving. So of course, there's no way for us to know whether any of that is true from his own true north and his guiding principles. I don't think that's the case. And I also don't think we should, I think part of whether it's being gay or any minority or any authentic part of oneself, I don't think we have to be a certain way in order for us to be true and real. I think being gay can just mean such different things for so many people. And I think if there are plenty of gay men, women who you wouldn't be able to pick them out of a lineup and say, oh, that person's gay. And that why should that be something that fosters judgment or critique? Now, I'll contradict myself and say, I do understand that, and I'm not insensitive to the fact that our community, along with many other minority communities, has a long-standing history of struggle to be accepted and to be accepted unconditionally. So I understand the school of thought that says, okay, you can be gay, but you have to act this way, and then it's cool. But if you're a flaming homosexual, then eh, a little too. If you're on TV, this is probably more the early 2000s example. If you're on TV, but you're anything but the Jack character on Will and Grace, I don't think we really have a role for you. So I get that. Wait, 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 but I hang think, on, but hang on. There was sure. Will. I mean, Jack was a character. And a lot of people cite Will and Grace as being one of the things in the 90s, early 2000s that normalized it, right? But there was Will. Jack was the flamboyant one, but Will was the Mayor Pete character. That's wasn't true. It? No, that's a good point. And yes, and I think they, they played off one another quite well in the show. I guess maybe a, another framing of it is I wouldn't say either of them were straight acting, right? They definitely they presented two stereotypical versions of the, the professional or straight laced 
Mayor Pete style, but gay, and then the the more flamboyant gay. Don't you think that's happened in all pop culture? I feel like that's happened with every minority. Obviously, in the black and white sitcoms that I used to watch on Nick at Night, you would see that with the role of the woman, the mother. She can only be the mother, the housewife, etc. Mary Tyler Moore broke the mold a little bit. Totally had a crush on her. But <laughs> <laughs> Nick at Night, man. So many of my crushes came from Nick at Night. But then same thing with Indian people, right? Apu, right, was the first Indian character. And then Big Bang Theory, even though it's a more modern show and I hate it with a passion, he's playing a stereotype versus Aziz Ansari's a redneck who happens to be Indian, right? Parks and Rec. So I guess the introduction of any pop culture character of a minority group plays the stereotypes. Sort of, and we saw this with Chinese people in movies in the 60s and the 70s, right? It was terrible. And now the normalization of, oh, it just happens to be a gay person. Yeah, of course, there's a token gay person on the show, just like there's a token Indian person on the show, etc. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And, and I think you could probably point to most any minority class and see some version of this. And by the way, I will caveat all this with my own personal view that being a straight white gay man with opportunity in America is not like a... With a Harvard does degree. Not, <laughs> does, not, does not compare to so many much more significant, at least my version of that, does, certainly doesn't compare to real struggle that so many have and do face today. So I don't want to do any false equivalency argument. But basically, I do think probably across different groups, there's different examples of arcs of progress where there's still a lot of progress to be done. So Will and Grace was a show that now we look at it and, and we can talk about how it's dated, but it was tremendous progress for the time. And it's a great show. <laughs> I disagree with that point wholeheartedly. <laughs> Fair well, enough. You don't great. like, I like that show. That was always one of my favorite shows. I, I'm not going to lie. I was a Seinfeld guy. Oh. It's like one you don't have to be, you don't have to, you don't have to be one or the other. You don't have to. Nah, man. One. Nah, man. <laughs> See, once you've. Aren't you just all inclusive, Raman? Come on. No, I am so biased. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like The Wire or Seinfeld. Seinfeld ruined comedy for me. It took a while for me to enjoy oh, anything right. that was funny on TV. I think I had to get to like Community or 30 Rock. <laughs> it was like a decade of hating anything with jokes on TV. <laughs> what are we Love talking it. about again? <laughs> talking about John. <laughs> talking about John here. I think we're talking about nothing. No, we're talking about you. <laughs> right, about so nothing. I've got like a million and five questions for you. Just going back to your parents again. How did they respond when they found out you were gay? How did you tell them and how did they respond? <laughs> I probably told them in, in really terrible ways, <laughs> but it was, it was part of my, my AOL instant messenger. Right. <laughs> no, no, it was in person. It was, uh, okay. so it, I guess it could have been worse, but yeah, these were the times of AOL instant messenger. So I'd say the way they each reacted and I'll start by saying again, I've got two incredibly loving parents who support me to the moon and back and a lot of people who have their coming out stories with their parents don't have it this good. So I feel very fortunate and blessed in that respect. But I was probably more nervous to tell my dad than, than my mom. But my dad, in the end, not really surprisingly when I think about their personalities, I think it was easier for my dad to take the news than for my mom. I told them both on back-to-back -back days, and both of them were in car rides where they were actually where they one were was driving. Where, one oh was where God. they were driving. You were well, risking yeah, your life there, John. I mean, <laughs> again, like I said, it wasn't, I hadn't thought it out so, so strategically, but for me, the, the goal was I just need to rip this off like a band aid. I just wanted done. And with my dad, it was, he was actually driving me to my mom's house. <laughs> this was the summer before I started business school. So I was actually living. I was basically homeless and I had just come back from working and living in Italy. And so I had a, a couple of months before I moved to Boston for business school. Where did you and go to business school? Where'd you go to business school, Mr. Model Minority? Hmm? <laughs> Harvard Business School. Oh. I won't say that some school in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I love, why is it that Harvard grads always say things like, I went to school in Cambridge, you know? I'm like, come I, on. I do. I just do. say, it. all right. Go on. I will say it. There's like a. I feel like an angst of dropping the H bomb. Period. Like it's not like a. I don't like to do it. So maybe some people say it because they genuinely have good intentions. They don't want to come off as obnoxious. But obviously, it's much worse. Say <laughs> so I went to school in Boston, <laughs> in Cambridge, or just technically just outside of Boston. No, that's super annoying. <laughs> but anyway, so basically, my dad's driving me to my mom's house, and I told him on the way. We were like almost arrived at my mom's house, obviously, because I waited to the last minute possible <laughs> to actually muster up the courage. But 
He took it much better than I did. <laughs> and he basically Wait, wait, over. explain. What does that mean? He took it better than you did? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I was so anxious and stressed about coming out. And I think at this point, I'd come out to enough friends where I was getting the hang of it and getting a little more confident, but it's your parents. And I think it's, at least in my experience, for a gay man coming out to his dad, it's tricky or at least feels tricky because this is your dad, the patriarch of the family, and cute young John trying to fit in and be adaptive and be dad's son. And so there's this feeling of not being accepted by your dad or not being, it felt like much more than coming out as being gay as a sexual orientation, but as not being dad's son kind of Yeah, not being component. who you thought they wanted you to be, right? Yeah. And yeah. which is ridiculous because it's totally in my head and I'm sure he went through his own process, but he right away pulled over the car and he's like, can I come out and give you a hug? Can I start telling my brothers and sisters? And I was like, eh, maybe not yet. I'm not comfortable <laughs> with that yet. So he was ready to double down more than I was, I guess, at that point on my being gay. That's great. <laughs> That's really great. And with my mom, also probably not the best strategy for how to come out to her. It was also in a car. <laughs> I thought I was being really smart because what, I said, what are, you, oh. what are you doing, John? You're like planning it for yeah, the car. You're, you're like, like, well, they can't walk out of the room. <laughs> when they're going 65 miles an hour, I'm going to, I'm going to shock them with my news. Well, here's what happened. So I wasn't long off from going off to business school and I had to get this stuff done <laughs> to get this out of the way, checked off. So this next day I was going to be flying off to meet some friends in Chicago. Coincidentally, I was flying off to Chicago to meet them because we were going to watch the gay games. <laughs> so, you know, I was, so you were like, like I before, said, before I watch the gay game, I right, have I to tell, tell my parents. Mom. I got to tell my mom. <laughs> yes. So like I said, I was really embracing this whole gay thing. But yeah, so I'm like, I got to tell her before get this out of the way. And so I'm like, mom, why don't I drive to the airport? Not really thinking in that, oh, wait, after I come out to her and she drops me off, she's got to drive the car back by herself, which was the big miss on my part, but which I feel bad about to this day. But basically, yeah, I came out to her and it was, just say it was a little bit different of a reaction. <laughs> was there a dream or tears? It was a reaction of getting a phone call in the middle of the night with some shocking news and disbelief and jumping right into some alarming and some really funny questions. So she had just visited me in Italy when I was living there. And so she said things like, and I'll throw in her Long Island Jewish accent here. She's, she'd say things like, first she started naming all my friends, asking if they were gay. Some yes, some no. And some of them who were a little bit more obvious, she'd say things like, I knew it. And then some of them I who were it. like, most obviously hetero, straight, straight, straight. She still asked about them. And then she asked, well, what about in Italy? Was, was your friend Stefano gay? And to which I replied, Yes. And then she said, well, why was he telling me he likes all those girls from Sex in the City? <laughs> and to which I replied, Mom, that's the gayest thing anyone could ever say. To you. <laughs> so look, it was just like I had to go through my own coming out period and my own coming to terms with it and feeling. And by the way, like, I feel like we all probably still have, I don't know if, if anyone or certainly not everyone ever gets to that point of 100% comfort and confidence with themselves. So there's probably still always opportunity to get more comfortable with oneself and in one's own skin. And similarly for her, it would have been super unfair for me to have this expectation that on day one, day zero, whatever, that she right away is going to embrace it and be all on board and not have questions and not want to change this thing or make sure that not that she wanted to change it, but she, I guess, questioned Back to our earlier conversations, she sort of knew me in this other context when I had dated women. And this whole notion back to, well, I didn't seem overtly flamboyant or this or that. And so it was more than fair for me to give her her, her time to have her own process. And in the scheme of things, it wasn't that long at all that she did come around. And I think the great equalizer is your parents, ultimately, they have love for you and they want you to be happy and Sometimes they just need to understand what it means and what it's all about. And so, and then it's not this thing that, especially back in the day, was taboo and more sensationalized. And so the day I kind of brought home my first longer term boyfriend, that was 
I think a moment when everything really clicked for her and she saw, okay, this is just like about who my son loves and who my son's going to have a partnership with. And it's not about all that other stuff that she saw on whatever in fill in the blank show. So John, I got to ask one related tangential question. Was there pressure for it to be a nice Jewish boy or like a nice Catholic boy? (laughs) (laughs) Not really. I mean, I was raised Jewish and I am still Jewish, although I'm probably not the most observant or practicing Jew, but my mom's a little more religious than I am. My dad's probably a little less. <laughs> so bringing home a goy is okay. Well, I, actually, boy. well, my mom is married to a Protestant, <laughs> her <laughs> second husband. So that helps. My dad's second wife, who's Jewish, she had us have a Christmas tree up <laughs> several <laughs> years. So the religion didn't come too much into play. The only time it comes into play now, because my husband is a much better Catholic than I am a Jew. And so one of our unwritten, unspoken vows of marriage is that I would, from time to time, go to Catholic Mass with him. And the routine we're in now is basically on Easter Vigil, which is very long, but I was prepared for it going <laughs> going to long temple services as All a right. kid. Follow-up question then, John. Does Scout sure. a bark mitzvah? A bark oh, mitzvah. A bark oh. mitzvah. Wow. I, That's a I, thing. I, I've been to one. <laughs> thing. Wait, so how old is a dog when this happens? Yeah. When do, when do dogs come of age? 13 is a pretty so dog is that like That's, two? All two? I know is it's a thing. I didn't know about it until I got to New York. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad that York I didn't thing. know about it. And that more so Chris didn't know about it because... He would Chris totally is not only a better Catholic than I am a Jew, but he's also a better Jew than I am a Jew. He also, <laughs> he usually like, will correct me on little things of Jewish culture. So I think he would have signed up for that. <laughs> there is something that happens around Easter or whenever called the blessing of the animals or something that we pass by churches in our neighborhood that have had signs up for it. And he's pointed out from time to time and I've changed the subject every time. Nice. But, so you know, no, no bark mitzvah, <laughs> please. <laughs> So I think, (laughs) John, you've shared so much with us, and I think it's now time for speed round. Are you ready for our speed round? (laughs) We'll see. I'm not always so quick on my feet, but we'll we'll give it a whirl. (laughs) Okay. What's one thing about you no one expects? And you can't say that you're gay. We just talked about that the whole time. (laughs) Well, I'm going to go a different route and say I am a big sports fan actually. And we're not friends anymore. We're not friends anymore. <laughs> so you see, I'm alienating the gays. I'm alienating the straights. <laughs> Growing up, I was a huge sports fan. I was the sports editor of my high school paper. I camped out overnight in the South Bronx to get Yankees playoffs tickets. I let that part of me die down for a while when I was embracing my newfound gay identity. But I've since picked it back up. And actually, Chris is a sports fan as well. So we're basically amongst our friend group, we're probably the only ones I can speak of that in any way, shape or form like sports. So I think, well, some of them who are close would definitely know it. And some of them who don't when we have <laughs> that, that's the like, secret. That's the yeah, secret. Yeah, that's, that's the big, that's the big reveal. <laughs> Sorry, you're watching what? <laughs> John, I knew there was a reason we didn't hang out that much. And I'm just yeah. I'm really hurt and <laughs> <Perhaps>. shocked. <laughs> as a as a fake sports fan, oh my god. Roman, I'm going to need you to take this news a little bit more like my dad would take it. Yeah, give him a hug, Roman. <laughs> no, yeah. no hugs. No hugs anymore. <laughs> Especially because you said Yankees, man. I mean, if I had to root for a team, it would be the Mets because they're the uh, uh. <sighs> This podcast is going to end our friendship. <laughs> is there a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Sure. So... I recently read the book, The Great Believers, which is an exceptional book, which I highly recommend if you haven't had a chance to read it. And it's set basically across two different time periods, first in the 1980s during the AIDS crisis in Chicago, and then in the 2010s, flash forward. But it's basically a great character story and It profiles the lives of some of these young gay men who basically before, during, and after the whole onset of the AIDS crisis. And while I myself didn't experience that firsthand, it just wasn't my era. And I'm even probably a little bit further removed from from some of my peers just because it took a little bit longer for me to figure out who I really was. But beyond it just being really well-written and totally the book I love, I think one of the things that really resonated with me a lot is 
this could have been us. This could have been me and my group of friends. And it's not, it feel, well, to one extent, it's a while ago. It's really not. And there's a number of works, of course, that profile that period really well. But I felt like the characters were relatable and felt like characters that could have been my group of friends. And just for me, coming into my own as, as a gay man was such a liberating and wonderful and special thing that I feel really fortunate that I had the support system and people around me to, even though it had its challenges along the way, I felt like I was able to embrace it and I was able to take leaps and not really have some minor obstacles, but not really get hurt or really, really challenged along the way. And knowing that I'm not far removed from this unimaginable horror that befell so many from just one generation before is just something that it's easy to lose sight of, but I try to reflect on it and totally changing gears. I mean, I think it, thinking about this pandemic and where we are today, as much as I've been struggling during this period with my business, because I run a travel company that specializes in travel to Italy, and we were one of the companies that were first hurt in a major way by the pandemic. I'm healthy. My family and close friends are healthy. I'm yeah, I'm in a trapped in New York City apartment, but we got everything we need here. We're doing just fine. And so I don't know why this triggered this parallel for me, but I think in general, while being gay and, and other types of challenges I've had to face along the way are real, I think it's important for anyone who's going through their own experiences to have perspective and realize that your biggest problem is your biggest problem, right? So I try to embrace how lucky and fortunate I am in so many ways. And, and I think in the spirit of this podcast, like I feel, yeah, I'm technically a minority, but I'm also in many ways not. And I think it's good to both embrace our own struggles, but also not be tone deaf to how other people often <laughs> and in many ways, shape and form have it a lot worse. That was a really long answer for a favorite book. <laughs> what is your favorite mom dish? My favorite mom dish. So my mom is definitely a better cook than Chris. But not as good a cook as I am. <laughs> I guess growing up, my favorite mom dish was taco night. And I've carried the taco night tradition alive. And we have that once a week, usually with friends. Yum. What's your least favorite food? And don't say oatmeal because Chris is listening. <laughs> I'd say anything. Anytime we're talking organs, <laughs> with limited exception, I'm pretty much count me out. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, I mean... I like some organs, but not all organs. Yeah, I could do chopped liver. Yeah, exactly. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview for a podcast? I could take this a couple different ways. I'm going to go where my heart is taking me, which is Amy Sedaris, if you guys are familiar. And she's been my longtime comedic hero, heroine. And she embodies quirky. She basically embodies the opposite of going <laughs> with the grain and everything she does. And she's brilliant. And yeah, I was definitely in the early 2000s obsessed with Strangers with Candy. Last question. You ready for it? We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> what does being a model minority mean for you? I think ultimately, just sort of drawing back on some of the points we hit on earlier, I think being a minority, ultimately, everyone has their own lens and collective set of experiences both external and as well as internal. And there's such a vast spectrum of what that means, both in terms of how being a minority has meant struggle, how someone wants to embrace and showcase whatever way, shape, or form they are a minority to the world. And I think what it comes down to is, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to be <laughs> a minority. And I don't think it's right to compare the Mayor Pete to the RuPaul, although RuPaul's pretty fabulous. And I think probably a bad example here, because I think it's hard to compare anyone to RuPaul. <laughs> but, but basically, what for sure RuPaul exudes, and what I hope Mayor Pete is exuding as well, is just being comfortable in one's skin and their authentic self. So, And that doesn't always mean the same thing across someone's lifetime. That can mean different things. I think we, in this culture, we're so quick to judge and judge people who are quote unquote our own because they aren't being a minority in the right way or they aren't being a majority in them, whatever it is. But basically, 
I think just letting people go on their own journey. And I think there is something for sure to be said about don't hide yourself and hide your true north. But I think as long as you're true to yourself and whatever that looks like, I think that's just fabulous. You had to use the word fabulous. <laughs> right as it was coming out there, I was like, oh my God, this is the gayest thing I've said all interview. <laughs> John, no, seriously. I just really appreciate your honesty. And just there's always a, a certain thoughtfulness that goes into every conversation we have. And I just appreciate you bringing that to this one. Thanks so much. Thank you. You John. are very welcome. Thank you guys for having me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. I remember when I arrived in the U.S., the bright lights of New York City. We arrived at night at JFK. I was so amazed as a 13-year-old. Oh, my God, this is the land of the free. I was so excited to be here. I thought, the buildings do not get this tall in Antigua, ever. I was so elated, and it was so great to be there. But then the next morning, when I woke up, oh, okay, I'm in an apartment. I didn't know what an apartment was before, but thank God I used to watch the Jeffersons. I didn't understand apartment style living because in Antigua we all got a house and I'm like why aren't we in a house that's it for now I've been Roman Segal and I'm still Sharon Lee Tony remember we're all model minorities out there we'll talk to you soon everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.